welcome to another episode of the Data Revolution podcast. Today, my guest is Quinn Dombrowski, who is an interesting person who is going to introduce us themselves. Hi, I'm Quinn Dombrowski. I am an academic technology specialist in the Division of Literatures, Cultures and Languages and in the Center for Interdisciplinary Digital Research in the library at Stanford University, which is probably the most acronym-tastic title of anyone you've had on the show. That is a mouthful. That's why I didn't even want to try and say that one. So what are we going to talk about today? Uh, today we're going to be talking about data visualization with textiles. That's an interesting angle. So what prompted you to be interested in this? I, I don't even really know how I, I got into this to begin with. Um, I have been teaching this this data visualization with textiles class at Stanford um, this past spring, and I'm teaching it again this upcoming spring. And and as I was starting to plan for the class, I dug through my closet and realized that you know about ten years ago I had made a data visualization on the um, occasion of my husband graduating with his PhD, and it was this elaborate quilty thing um, where every single color represented something different, whether it was the number of classes he had taken or the classes he had taught or the languages he had learned or the chapters of his dissertation um, all kind of pieced together like you know very very carefully um, but in the end the thing did not turn out to be a square and I was so frustrated that like it wasn't going to realize my dreams of like you know a quilt or a pillowcase and so I, I balled it up and threw it in a closet and forgot about it for 10 years until one day I, I found myself doing this but um, I mean, this, this when when you say data visualization with textiles, people automatically go to the temperature blanket, you know, which seems well, that's to where be my weird. brain went too. So exactly. you know, I've seen it so often. So often, and, and and I mean, like you know, the temperature blanket is great as a way in if if that's your kind of thing. Um, you know, it's very clear and clean data. Um, I mean, you do have to make some choices about like, are you doing high for the day and low for the day, or just one of the two? Um, but I mean, it, it it's pretty clear and unambiguous, and like you translate it directly to colors. You know, to sort of map your colors to to your data. It's it's a pretty simple thing to do, but. Um, you know, I, I always hate to see it end with that. There, there are so many other things and, and more things you can do um, to sort of take advantage of the affordances of, of textiles as something uh, really different than, um, you know, just sort of throwing some data in Excel and hoping that it turns out or, or Tableau or any of your, your pointy clicky things. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I've, I've come to understand the, the data that I work with this way um, in a really uh, like rich and meaningful way uh, that, that wouldn't have been possible with, with a spreadsheet. It sounds like a really tactile way to interact with data, which sounds like a very strange thing to me because, you know, you're used to it being on a screen, but you're actually touching it and interacting with data physically, which does that change how you think about it, how you feel about it? I, I think it does. Um, so, I mean, there's like, there's a difference between, you know, making a pie chart that says, you know, you know, something happens twice as often as one other thing. You can represent it as a pie chart. You can represent it as, as you know, a bar chart. There's there's lots of ways that you can represent these things graphically. Um, and I, I think on some level, your brain's like, oh, okay, all right, yeah, this this happens, you know, a lot more than this other thing. Um, but it, it really is a different experience to, you know, start a project with like, you know, two balls of yarn of roughly equal size, and then by the time you're done, 
um, you know, have one of them be be almost out or like a tiny little fluffy thing um, and the other be, you know, still something sizable, like, you know, understanding kind of like how like how we get to twice as much as some other value um, through number of, you know, rows of knitting or sort of like cranks of a knitting machine or or rows of weaving. Um, it's 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 really satisfying. And, and yeah, I feel like I have a better a better sense of like what this is um, once I've done something with it. So how do the students um, react to these these courses? How, how do they come in and how do they leave? Have, have they, you somehow brainwashed them as part of this? Well, well so um, I, I run a textile makerspace at Stanford. It, it started off its life as a uh, computer lab that no one loved. Um, and so I, I inherited it when I started my job. And I asked around and you know, no one no one was very excited about this computer lab. It had dying computers and, and dying digitization equipment. Um, so I, I got rid of all of that and just out of pocket bought some sewing machines and, you know, you know, wrote out a sign declaring it the textile makerspace. And, and so it was. Um, and, and thanks to, um, you know, some small bits and pieces of money here and there, um, you know, an, an anonymous alum donation, and then some funding from uh, an initiative at Stanford to bring together all the makerspaces called Making It Stanford, where now I have like student staff, um, you know, we were able to create like a pretty thriving space. But one of the the goals of this Making at Stanford program is to have all undergrads have some kind of making be part of their undergrad experience, you know, be it. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, and there's there's all kinds of maker spaces. There's like, you know, ones with big industrial machines and lots of safety training. There's like an you know, an educator oriented space with like they have like a laminator. Um, of course the teachers have the laminator and the combining machines and like it's fantastic. Um, you know, lots of laser cutters, lots of 3D printers and things like that. Um, and I'm I'm the one that's geared towards textiles, um, sort of like the odd cousin of the bunch. Uh, I, I don't think we've got a textile. At, at our uni, I don't think we've got a textile making space. I've got to go and ask some questions because yeah, we've got well, all the other kinds. It's it's a great, you know, it, it, and it's the, the funny thing is they did a survey and they showed that um, the second most common piece of equipment across all of these spaces was after the 3D printer, of course, um, was a sewing machine. But the problem was um, in a lot of the places, it was a sewing machine that was picked up kind of like an afterthought and no one really knew how to use it and no one knew what to do with it. So it sort of sat gathering dust in a corner. Um, and the, the feedback that we got from other people was like, yeah, I've seen sewing machines around. But like when I ask people how they use it, like no one can help me. So we found our way here. Um, so yeah, I I I run this this makerspace and and you know when the funders say that they would love to see more making courses, you know you you can take a hint and uh, I, I put I put a course on the book. Um, you know I, I assured the department chair that this would take like no time at all. You know it was going to be a small independent study, five students max. <laughs> This was not even going to be something that she would have to worry about, like eating my life. Um, and so we, we got it. We got it registered. And um, on the first day of students signing up for classes, um, I I realized pretty quickly that something had gone wrong in the in the course system because all of a sudden I had 20 people signed up. Um, <laughs> So I couldn't say no to 15 people <laughs> um, and and just basically reimagined the whole thing uh, completely on the fly. Um, you know, the, the, the textile makerspace can't fit 20 people at the same time. I mean, you can, I've, I've packed 30 in there, but it's like a fire hazard. Um, mm -hmm. You can't turn around. <laughs> Uh, so, so, you know, we set it up so that people could come in during any of our, our open hours and, uh, me or the other staff would teach them how to, how to use whatever method or methods they were interested in. Uh, and the students just made these 
utterly delightful projects um, and you know, kind of all at their own pace, working on whatever kinds of data they wanted. We had a check-in in the middle. Um, and that, that, was a, that was a great moment to um, actually have a conversation with some of these students um, and find out from them, you know, some of them came in with like, you know, very academic, uh, you know, data sets that they they were, you know, going to be working on. Or so they assured me, yes, you know, tracking, tracking the reading that I'm doing over time and, you know, oh, you know, things in my thesis and, and so forth. Um, but the, the more you get them talking about it and kind of drawing them out on the subject, um, you know, more often than not, there was like something else that they actually wanted to do that like data that they thought was like, weird and fun and like they wish that they could do but like kind of with the academic rigor mindset of of you know a, a university like that's not where they went to first but eventually we, we got them thinking along those lines um and, and that's that's the project that many of them ended up making there was a a student who had tracked the number of cats that she had seen on campus um and made a sweatshirt where the, the tail was the data about the cats over time um and all of this she managed to sort of turn into a data set from her photos um, it, it was just a delight. It's fascinating to think about students um, learning to interact with data visually and going from the very academic to their, their real passion. And that's a, that's a pretty unusual trajectory for a university course. How, how did the administration view this? I mean, I didn't tell them. I mean, we just did it. Um, I mean, one of the, the the nice things about Stanford is is kind of culturally, it's very entrepreneurial, um, and there's a lot of space to just sort of like go and try things, um, as long as it's sort of within within you know generally reasonable boundaries. And I, I think it's it's fairly well understood from the administration side that um, you know there there are mental health challenges um, you know among the students. It's a high stress environment. Um, and a lot of the, you know, creative art, um, you know, personal essay writing classes, I mean, they fill up, you know, within five minutes of, of registration opening. There's, there's really a need for this kind of creative self-expression. Um, and, and there's not as many avenues for this as, as one would hope. And I think that that's, that's one angle of, of the Making at Stanford program, trying to um, kind of make that more accessible and in reach um, for, for everyone, kind of regardless of, of what shape that takes exactly. That's, that's really interesting because in Australia, our government, our previous conservative government tried to stop people from doing arts degrees by putting the price up a real lot. But people kept doing them. Yeah. So there's this real hunger for students to do things that aren't STEM. Um, and they really, really want to do it, even if you double the price. So there's not a lot of price sensitivity in, in the student space. It's really quite interesting. And even now, the Labor government that um, they're like the Democrats for the Americans, uh, they, they're try they've, they've kept those fee structures and they're studying. But why, why are people not studying STEM? It's because, like, nobody, not everybody has to study STEM. And there are things that you can do in the STEM space like this, which I find really interesting. And because one, one of my big challenges is how you visualise data um, and how you can make it accessible to normal human beings. Because yeah, there was this crazy idea for a long time that every person in a business wanted to be a citizen data scientist. And I'm mm. like, no, they don't. They just want to do their jobs. Yes. No, it's, 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 it's really interesting. And I mean, one of the things that has surprised me about running the makerspace and, and this course has been um, that it's not the students that I expected that, you know, 
take to it so easily. Um, it is, in fact, the engineers who are probably the most the most common department of the students who come by the makerspace um, is is engineering. And it takes a lot of effort and kind of encouragement and cajoling um, to get the students in in my department, the, the literature's department, to to come and make things. And what I what I realized eventually, even though I, I wouldn't have guessed it at first, is that you know, once you are once you are used to making one kind of thing, it's not a big leap to make another kind of thing. So, you know, if if you, you know, are spending your days in, in a lab making like microcontrollers, um, like why not go spend some yarn or like sew a thing um you know the 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 transferability of that is is pretty high um but it's it's the students who have spent their entire lives um basically reading and writing things um mm -hmm. for whom like the idea of like using your hands to do something besides turning a page or like typing some things um is is kind of alien and um you know needs needs some translation that that actually aligns with my experience because, you know, every engineering student has to do stuff in the shop. So they're in a workshop somewhere making, like you said, circuit boards or, wel or welding stuff. And, you know, we've got some pretty fun labs in our engineering faculty. So it would, wouldn't make sense that they find the, the tactile nature. It's, it's a really, I just find it so utterly fascinating that, that, um, there is such a resistance from some of these students so because there's so much in their head and it tells me that there's, there, there's probably something wrong with our whole education process that they get so much into their head that they can't associate with, with tactile. And we were chatting before we started recording about um, my past when I was in high school and one of, one of the art um, mediums that I used was weaving, which... Is from from your reaction was pretty unusual. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen that um, so commonly in schools here. We when I got so I I decided um, kind of on, on an impulse to buy a giant standing loom. I mean, this thing is almost as long as as I am tall. Um, it didn't actually fit through the door of my office. We had to partially disassemble it. I, I got it because it was on on sale, and I'm like, all right, clearly like I need to buy this loom. And then step two is figure out what to do with it. Um, and I I asked around, and I only managed to find one student who um you know went to an unusual like sort of rural private school and happen to know like using this kind of loom like how it works and how you set it up um but yeah that, that definitely seems less less common here at least oh, um, i know it's, it's pretty uh, pretty uncommon here to uh confession i went to a private school here when we had a lot of facilities yeah. um and you could pretty much do whatever you wanted in the art space but um i think because because i'm one of those people who really lives in my head you know i translates through the keyboard so it was really interesting to make things with clay or to make things with with looms um and I haven't done it since I was in high school so it's just a really interesting thing for me about how do we as educators and I think the maker space is a really great idea and then there's this whole challenge of how do we how do we think differently about data which is one of the things that I'm really interested in is um, how do we visualize data differently? And I think your your approach with with textiles is is a really interesting one. Do you have, have you also because it always seems in my mind that um, weaving and knitting are correlated? Have you also adopted that? 
Yeah. So about a year ago is when I just started getting into like all of the yarn based arts. Um, You know, I'd been sewing for, I don't know, 15 years. And at this point, um, I make like literally all of my clothes except for socks. Um, I, I, I sew them all myself. Um, but, but sort of, I had socks up there as like this, this holy grail of like, if only I could knit myself a pair of socks, then I could say, you know, I've done, I've done the whole, the whole thing. <laughs> um, and, and also, I mean, there's, there's, there's some appeal to the, the, you know, knitting crochet, um, even spinning with some of the, the modern portable e-spinners, like the electric eel wheel, um, that can fit in a little lunchbox and you can do it on a, on a train, um, to have a, a creative hobby that's more portable than sewing, because I mean, sewing is 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 pretty infrastructure heavy like you you can't just throw a sewing machine like in your backpack and do it on the train the same way you could you know pick up pick up some knitting needles on the train yeah for the train (laughs) yeah exactly um so yeah i i I started i started exploring those and like spinning my own yarn and uh you know i i I got some folks to teach me how to crochet um crochet is is more than knitting um crochet is kind of surprisingly popular among college students these days Uh, there's there's a lot of people who do it um you know there's there's plenty of people who um come by the makerspace to like you know pick up a different size crochet hook than they happen to have on them or like sort of see what we have in our donated stash of yarn um and then make wonderful things and send us pictures and it's it's just a delight um so yeah i mean it's it's but yeah, crochet crochet is a little bit different. It's a little bit more kind of geometrical and and kind of three D ish than than knitting. Um, where kind of in learning to to weave and reading books about it, I, I've seen far more in terms of like translating knitting terminology into weaving terminology um, than the equivalent for for crochet. Yeah, yeah, they seem to me to be quite different. I I, I know all all of them, but I don't do them. Um, it's kind of making me feel weird about why why don't I do these things anymore? Because I read books all the time. Oh, so this this is this is my hack. I've been listening to audiobooks while I um while I knit and weave, and it it, it I feel like I can um do that easily and enjoy them both at the same time. So 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 what what sort of um because just Stanford when you were talking about the computer lab I was like everyone at Stanford must have a decent computer and not need an actual computer lab so it makes sense that you're able to to create the makerspace but is this mainly undergraduate students that are coming through the makerspace or do the postgrads come through too it's everyone it's it's undergrads it's grad students it's staff um there's even some faculty who who come by um, you know, sometimes it's just like really basic thing is like they want to mend something, um, you know, or they want to make a present for someone. We we have an embroidery machine uh, and that thing is just like humming 24 uh, seven, especially right before the holidays and before the, the end of the school year when people want to like embroider things as, you know, graduation gifts for friends or, uh, you know, other mementos. Um, it, it really is just a wonderful space of of kind of encounter across these different, um, you know, administrative divisions between people at the university and, and different, you know, ranks and and roles and, um, you know, it, it's it's not it's not really clear, um, you know, who's going to be the expert in this space. Like you you may have a tenured faculty member like you know coming in with like you know vague memories of of having knit you know several decades before and wanting to catch up again, um, you know, and a seventeen year old can can get them on the right track. Like it's it's a really beautiful thing. 
so it sounds like a really great collaborative space. I'm actually wondering how how we can do more of these kind of things with, with data, um, how how it might be translatable from from the textile space into other spaces. Like one of the things we've got for our researchers is um, we do get-togethers where people do stats work together. Um, because, you know, stat, a lot of people find stat statistics very confronting. I personally did because um, I was an arts girly, not a math girly. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but, you know, having these collaborative spaces where you can sit together and work together I think is a big way to make a lot of this stuff more accessible. And it's just really interesting for me about how we can how we can take this kind of great idea about the makerspace into other spaces. Like we're already doing it with with all the makerspaces in engineering. We've got so many makerspaces. Every time you turn around a corner, there's another makerspace that's cropped up because on campus, you know, there's so much demand for them. And we've got a lot of students. We're, we've got about 60,000 students. So there's a lot of demand, but um, one of the interesting things for me is how do we how do we do more collaborative learning outside the classroom space? Because I think that's where a lot of the magic happens. I suspect in your makerspace, a lot of the magic's happening because you're bringing people together with an interesting object in front of them. So they're sort of side by side look, looking at the object together. Yeah. Well, the the I think one of the, the the great innovations of the the making at Stanford initiative because I mean it's a, it's a similar situation right where you know makerspaces everywhere like no one knows who's running other makerspaces no one knows who has what equipment um, and things and things like that but even um, I mean certainly like having access to you know sort of a pool of funding and and grants and things um, helps a lot but you know there's there's also this concept of like the maker council um, where it's the people who run you know all of the kind of major and minor spaces on their radar and we get together once a quarter and just like talk about things and plan workshops together and you know I volunteered to like you know anyone who wants to activate all of those sewing machines they have like gathering dust in the corner like let me know we'll schedule a time I'll go I'll go show all your student staff how to do it um and, and I, I think like you know, similarly, like I, I, I wouldn't, you know, know my way around a, a 3D printer if my life depended on it. But like now, now I know who to ask, and you know, sort of build, building up these like sort of friendly networks of of expertise where like you don't necessarily have to know everything, but like you know the guy um, who will know the thing, and and you can sort of help route people to to the right thing is is a really um, powerful thing on on campuses that tend to be like so siloized around individual disciplines and different methods and you know it, it, like a, a, as it turns out the person who had like a stash of other looms you know was a was a physics professor um and, <laughs> and you know never would have guessed this um but it's it's just delightful um to to make so many new friends in different parts of campuses that I had never even been to before it's fascinating here, you know, because you get you go to the place where you do your classes and you just hang around there. So getting people to go to other parts of the campus is always an interesting challenge. You need to have a reason to do it. I'm, I'm interested to to wonder though how this might be translated into the workplace. What what sort of ideas have you got about that? Because you know it's an interesting idea. 
Yeah, well, so um, the the shawl that I'm wearing right now actually was was one of my first weaving projects that is very much like a workspace like data uh, project um, where this this is um, three months of Slack messages from uh, my immediate group in the library. And oh, wow. Yeah, between August and uh, November 2022. And, you know, one of my first weaving projects, I um, just sort of pulled up the history of our Slack messages and, you know, just sort of assigned one color of yarn to each uh, basically like role or job title. Um, the, the boss is in purple, the developers are in black, um, people in my job are the sort of turquoisey uh, color. Ooh. And I just, I just wove, you know, one one uh weft yarn for every message like i wasn't trying to factor in um you know amount of time that elapsed between the messages or like length of messages there's other things you could do to to try to do that as well but literally just like who is saying what and then who's replying over the course of time um and you know i i actually finished this exercise feeling really good about the group that I work for within the library that like, you know, we're, we're actually a pretty functional place. Like people talk to each other. Um, you know, there's, there's like friendly chit chat, but it's not like forced or weird. Um, our boss has a habit of like making announcements, um, which I hadn't really appreciated before. Um, but like, you know, kind of as, as, you know, a way to kind of understand the kind of the relationships between people and the interactions within a group. I imagine there, there are other groups in the library that were I did you a similar exercise for, it would look very, very different. Um, and then thinking about kind of like what what do these differences in dynamic like tell us about the group? Like, are there are there issues that we're seeing within the group that you know manifest in other ways that like communication style might have you know play some role here? Um, you know that that's been that's been kind of really useful for me like within the context of of this of this organization. Um, yeah, I mean another another thing that we've done at the makerspace that um, you know people seem to to really enjoy is um, our guest book that we actually do use for stats. I, I count the the yarns um, when people ask, well, how many people have visited the makerspace? I'm like, all right, let me go get a a pencil and like count all of these tiny things. Um, <laughs> So people people weave um, a different color of yarn depending on what they come for. Are they here to sew or embroider or knit, um, so forth. Um, and then th there's a, a key with different colors of beads. And optionally, they can add colors for how they're feeling um, that day. And they slide on as many beads as they, they, they feel like sharing. Um, and so at the end of the year, we hang this up as a tapestry. And you can kind of like see the ups and downs of the quarter, um, you know, where people are getting stressed, you know, obviously finals week is terrible and everyone's exhausted. Um, but like as as a way, you know, to sort of like anonymously capture um, in some way that like still feels cathartic and meaningful, um, you know, workplace morale in a way that's not like, you know, sending out a survey where people are probably going to lie. It's 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 harder to oh. lie with yarn. It's yeah, we get we get the surveys and it's just like, oh no, I don't want to tell you how I'm feeling. Right? <laughs> if you could if you could basically anonymously like go up to a loom and slide on, you know, some yarn and some beads, I I, I wonder I, I wonder if at least in, in some work cultures, um, that might be a, a useful way to kind of like get a pulse on on how people are doing um in a way that's that's like less awkward and and sort of satisfying. Yeah, because it's, it's one of the things in our agile process with my development team, you know, that we, we always want to sort of take a temperature check of how people are feeling. And we just, we just uh, you know, we've tried various methods. But 
it depends on the high, on the levels of trust. Like we've got a high level of a trust in the team, so people are willing to just say, "I don't feel good today. I don't feel good about the last sprint. I don't, you know, and and stuff like that." But not everybody has that high level of trust, so I think that sort of technique could be really useful to get insights into a lot a lot of different workplaces. Yeah, there's there's no you know handwriting to give you away. There's no demographics. You know, it's just. You know, plus, plus it's just kind of satisfying to like grab a piece of yarn, chop it off and just go over, under, over, under and slide some beads on. Um, Mm. Yeah. So so this has been a really interesting chat. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for persisting through my internet problems. Thank you, NBN, for breaking down yet again. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Quinn. I've really enjoyed our chat. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And that is it for another episode of the Data Revolution podcast. I'm Kate Crothers. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to give the show a nice review and a like on your podcast app of choice. See you next time.